Thank you, ladies, for that beautiful song. Now, I hope that you don't find this insulting, but I have a little uh, word-finding disability, a brain injury. So whenever I forget the name of your family, I always say to Heather, you know the family that always smiles? You know the smiley family? Ben and Sarah and Carrie? Um, you guys just radiate the joy of the Lord, and I really appreciate that, and thank you for that song. So my wife and I went to, uh, let's, let's dim the lights, nobody needs to see me. Um, <laughs> My wife and I went to Italy for two weeks for our 25th anniversary, and we had a fantastic time. But if you've ever, I don't often take two weeks off. You know, most of us don't take two weeks off, but you come back and you feel like the world has changed. Uh, it's kind of weird. You know, is church still there? Is my house still there? Is everything still there? Um, so let's hope I still remember how to preach. But I, I got back to work. I work at the hospital during the week, and my badge access had been eliminated. They had canceled my badge access, so I was a little freaked out. I tried to get into my own office, and I couldn't get in. I had to call security. I couldn't get into any of the rooms. It was just a magnetic strip that didn't work. It just failed, so I didn't have to worry about that. But my church key still works, so thank you, John. I appreciate that. Uh, you tried to deactivate my church key? Hey, it's a privilege to be able to get back up here and uh, bring the word of God to you this morning. We got a, a good message for you this morning. We're in 1 Samuel chapters 18 and 19, and um, you know, as the Lord was, was working with me about what to share with you, it became evident what he wanted me to share through these two chapters, and that is we have a choice in life. And I'm very happy that Chris gave his testimony this morning because Chris said that the Lord spoke to him that it was time for him to choose whether he was going to follow the Lord's path or the world's path or his own path. And I think in 1 Samuel chapters 18 and 19, we clearly see the dichotomy between a man, David, who follows the Lord's path, and another man, Saul, who follows his own path. And I really want to focus on how that comes out in life through emotions and motives, one who follows the Lord and one who follows self or the world. And I think it's very clear in these verses um, what the implications of having those philosophies are. But I, I found this quote by um, Kierkegaard, 19th century theologian, who we probably wouldn't agree with on most theological things, but I agree with him in this regard. And so do most believers and unbelievers believe this about the scriptures. Kierkegaard says, My soul always reverts to the Old Testament and to Shakespeare. There at least one feels that it's human beings talking. There people hate people, love people, murder their enemy, and curse his descendants through all generations. There people sin. That's true. That's something people recognize who are not believers about Scripture, that nothing is hidden. Everything is laid bare about human nature and emotions and, and motives. And, 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 it's, and it's just so true. So as we look at 1 Samuel chapters 18 and 19, I'm going to ask you the question now that I'm going to ask you at the end. What is ruling your emotions and motives today? Are you following Christ and being ruled by him? Or are you following self and the world? And are your emotions and motives being ruled by that choice? All right, so that's the question I need you to ask as we go through this. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is a sword, Lord, that, that divides soul and spirit, that, that comes and, and grabs us by our hearts and souls and minds and says, look and see what I see. Father, help us want to follow you more with a passion that's undying, with a passion, Lord, that no one can stamp out, with a fire, Lord, that sweeps 
across not only our souls, but the souls of those we interact with. Father, be with us. Make us strong men and women in you and help us walk the path of righteousness. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen. All right, let's start our journey. So if you're in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1, if you remember, we ended chapter 17 by David slaying the giant, Goliath. And we start chapter 18 by David coming to Saul, and apparently they have a lengthy conversation at the end of chapter 17 about David's faith and how he trusted the Lord. I'm Saul, how did you do this, David? How did you slay the giant? And no doubt David went into an elaborate display of affection for the Lord and faith in trusting the Lord. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul about such things that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Now next sermon that Pastor Rossetti preaches, he's gonna get into the love of Jonathan and David. We're just gonna touch on it briefly here because it's so important. One man, Saul, heard David pour out his soul about how he defeated Goliath by trusting in the Lord. And Saul, being an evil man controlled by self, could only keep thinking of how can I use David for my own success? How can I use David for my own advancement? How can I use David for my own good? That was Saul's motivation because Saul only sought self. But there was another person listening to the conversation. It was Saul's son, Jonathan listening intently to the faith of David. Now we know that Saul knew David and his father earlier, despite him asking, who is your father? In last chapter, Saul apparently didn't have that much love for remembering people's names or who they were. But no doubt, David and Jonathan had some interactions in the past. But here, Jonathan hears the heart of David. And look at what it says. The soul of Jonathan, after hearing his story of Goliath, was knit to the soul of David. Knit. Knit to the soul of David. What does that conjure up in your mind, church, when something is knit together? I, oh, they were going to tape my microphone, and I said, no. I'm sorry, guys. I, I'm, I'm just a technical mess. But knit. Think about that. When you, I don't knit. Do any of you knit in here? Anybody knit anymore? I mean, we got Walmart. I don't think anybody knits. Okay, okay, the Smiley family still knits. That's excellent. I love that. That's what makes them so happy is knitting things together. But when I think of knitting, I think, you know, you want to have something that is of the same cloth that can come together, right? You don't want to knit things that look disparate. You don't want to knit things that don't come together and form something beautiful, right? So the souls of Jonathan and David were knit together after this talk. They were one. They formed something beautiful because, church, they were of the same fabric, of the same mindset. David and Saul, not so much. David and Jonathan had hearts that were for God. And Jonathan recognized that in David. And they knit together that day. He loved him like he loved himself. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. What was that covenant? We get little glimpses of that covenant throughout the following chapters. The covenant was, David, I'm going to do whatever God wants me to do to make you succeed. 
for you and our people because God has blessed you. David, I ask you as part of this covenant to take care of my family and always take care of them. Always be willing to stand up for them. Always be willing to be with us. I will support you if you support those whom I love. And together we can do what's best for the nation of Israel because we are knit together as one in our faith for the Lord. Jonathan went further. Now, Jonathan was five to ten years older than David. They were not of the same age. 20 years ago, we thought he was five years older. Now we kind of think he maybe was 10 years older. But regardless, Jonathan was the older of the two. Now, Jonathan was not some willy-nilly son of the king who stayed in the kitchen and wore royal robes and was served all day long. What do we know about Jonathan from 1 Samuel? He was a warrior who defeated the Philistines. He was strong. He was mighty. He was a man who could go into battle and he could defeat the enemy and he proved it by doing it. And he's older than this young shepherd. And he just saw this young shepherd slay a giant and have a presentation before the king of how he did it. Now, I don't know about you, but here's where we start seeing human emotions. If you were the king's son and you saw this little young whippersnapper five, ten years younger than you coming in and getting the king's favor, how might you feel as a human being? Jealous. Who is this young man? Who is this person? What are his motives? That's not what Jonathan does. Jonathan puts on the mind of Christ. Even before he knew that such a thing existed, he puts on the mind of God and says, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. Not just to make David warm, that was the robe of royalty. That was the robe of kingship. When he took off that robe and gave it to David, Jonathan was saying, I acknowledge that you will be the king. I acknowledge that you deserve to wear this robe. That's awesome. That's motive subjected to the will of God. And that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. This I find intriguing. Uh, I, I was an English major before I was a Bible major. And I always look for the connections in words and the Bible has so many of them. But just prior to this, whose armor was given to David? Saul's armor. Saul said, take my armor and go into battle and fight Goliath. And David said, I can't even walk in this armor. I'm not going to use it. I don't need it. I don't want it. It's not armor I want to put on. We are not of the same material, you and I. You and I, Saul, cannot be knit together. But he takes Jonathan's robe and Jonathan's armor because this is a good fit. This is something that David can wear. This is something that David can knit to himself because it is knitted in love. It is given in love. It is given for the purpose of saying, I acknowledge God by acknowledging David. And David says, I can walk in Jonathan's armor. And I can function in Jonathan's armor because we are of the same cloth. It's a beautiful thing to see that in Scripture. I say this to say this, church, it's always nice to reference passages in the New Testament when we go through the Old Testament, Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle, church, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Church, we have to put on the armor of God, not the armor of Saul, not the armor of the world, not the armor of the flesh, not the armor that causes us not to be able to walk because it doesn't fit us. It's not knit to us. Church, we, we as a church have to put on the armor of God as we fight self, selfishness, self-motivation. And church, this says so we can fight against the powers and principalities that are surrounding us. I don't fear them as much as myself. You know what those powers and principalities are doing? They're trying to get me to live for myself. They're trying to get me to trust in myself. They're trying to get me to put on that armor of Saul that will protect me, that armor of a man that will protect me. But God wants me to put on the armor of God. But if I live in the world of self, I will be victim to the powers and principalities of this world throughout all of my life. And I will walk that path. And I will pay those consequences. But no, give me the armor of God. Give me the armor of Jonathan. Give me the armor that was forged in love. Give me the armor with which I can be knit together. But it goes on. It's not love that blinds us, but jealousy. As we look at 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 7, it happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of the cities of Israel, singing and dancing. You know how you women are, always singing and dancing. To meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain thousands and David ten thousands. Oh, motives, anger, feelings, Saul. Wait a minute, what are those women singing? Am I hearing them correctly? I, the king, I slay a thousand, but, but David, this shepherd boy, slays thousands, ten thousands? Ah, not liking that. Then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Suspicion of what, church? Suspicion that the only motive in David's heart was to dethrone Saul. Paranoia set in. Paranoia set in. Hey, am I triggering anything in your life, in your relationships, where you may have had jealousy you may have been envious. You may have been a little paranoid about people coming to take what you have in some degree, whether it be at work or at home or somewhere. These are human emotions, as Kierkegaard said, that the Bible lays bare because we are impacted by them. We are all impacted by them. But David's motive was not to unseat Saul. In fact, David wouldn't become king for another 20 years. David's motivation was to please God and to serve God's people. But everything David did saw, saw through a filter of self. Self, because that's where he lived. What's in it for me? The hand is the visible part of the brain, Khan said. The hand 
is the visible part of the brain. What's in my hand might tell you what's in my brain. Immanuel Kant. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul. An evil spirit from God, God allowed this evil spirit to come mightily upon Saul and he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual and a spear was in Saul's hand as usual, as we'll see. Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David escaped from his presence twice. It's a beautiful thing. David played the harp, the lyre for Saul to soothe the king. But look, God tells us what was in David's hand and God tells us what was in Saul's hand. What was in David's hand? The harp. The harp is an instrument of peace, an instrument of rest, an instrument of trust. It would be played to soothe the savage beast. It would be played to bring peace, contentment, joy. Don't worry about so many things. Listen to the heavenly music of the harp. And that's what was in David's hand, the harp. Oh, this little shepherd boy playing the harp disgusts me because I know what he wants. He's not playing the harp for me. He's playing it to lull me into sleep so he can take my kingdom. Why don't I just kill him? Because what's in my hand? Why are you sitting there listening to the harp with a sword in your hand? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you're going a little crazy. Maybe you're going a little wacky. I'm going to go to the harp concert with a sword, honey. All right. All right. You bring your sword. But he had the sword in his hand. And he was so enraged by the sound of the beautiful harp and his emotions that he got enraged. And he tried to pin David to the wall with his spear. Everybody's against us, folks. Everybody's our enemy. Everybody's motive is sinful. You know it, right? We all know it. The only reason that guy preaches is to make 20 bucks or so. He's not in it for God. He's in it for the stage. We all have these thoughts that we put on people. And they may be true, but I bet a lot of them are not true. Sometimes people are just playing the harp. Sometimes people are just praising God. And sometimes we don't have to assign an ulterior motive to that. Sometimes we can let the spear fall out of our hand and just enjoy the music. The itch of poison envy. I was in a Shakespeare mood when I put together this sermon. I'm sorry. I have to have these titles. The itch of poison envy. Yes. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Now I want to stop here for a second. Saul planned to make David fall in battle. Saul planned to remove his enemy by having the Philistines kill him. Foreshadowing? What does David do to Uriah? Uriah, David sends him into battle so that David's problem can be eliminated or his enemy can be eliminated. David follows God. He's a man after God's own heart. But we know, church, that that does not mean that David is perfect. 
We know, church, that does not mean that you or I are perfect. The choice here is to walk on the path of God as much as we possibly can trusting him or to walk the path of self as much as we possibly can without trusting him. But there's never perfection on this path. But we have to be moving on this path to the best of our ability and trusting him. Yes, sin will come in, undoubtedly. Emotions will come in. We're not standing face to face before the Lord yet. All of our human nature, all of our fleshly nature has not been removed yet, but we have to make the choice to walk this path or we, like David, will fall into the very sin that has beset him. The very danger, I should say, that has beset him through Saul. I just thought that was very interesting. When his servants told David these words, his servants told David, hey, Saul wants to kill you by sending you in battle. It pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. Before the days had expired, David rose up and went, he and his men, and struck down 200 men among the Philistines. Then David brought the forest skins to Saul as a dowry, as a payment for his daughter's hand, and they gave them the full number to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul had already promised him the older daughter, but then he backtracked on that and didn't give David the older daughter. But Saul does give him Michael. So Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, for a wife. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. We get again. Or he already didn't trust him nonstop. Now he's his enemy continually. There's just the path that Saul's on that says, I hate this guy and I don't respect that the Lord wants him to be king of all Israel. But look what's happening here, church. Saul's daughter loved David and that bothered Saul to no end. He wants my kingdom. My son has put on the robe of royalty on this man and now my precious daughter loves this man who I hate. Do you see the digression of of Saul's life? He's just getting deeper, deeper into the soup of human emotions and fear, not trusting God. Now he sees his own family turning against him and he says, it's not my fault, it's David's fault. I have to kill him and all these other things will get better. My family will suddenly love me. Israel will praise me for slaying 10,000. I will be back on top if I just kill this man. Church, it's the denial of self-ruin. And I ask you that question, where are you this morning? Are you in a pattern where your emotions and the motives that you have and the feelings that you have, you're not trusting God, you're just seeing everything and everybody as your enemy and every problem in your life is caused by X, Y, and Z and not me. Sometimes, like in Saul's case, we have to look inwardly and say, these problems that I'm having with my family, with the nation are my problem. They're not caused by David. They're caused by my motives by my assumption, by my inability to follow God who put me in this position, a lack of recognition of who put him where he was and how he could remain there. When there was war again, David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with great slaughter so that they fled before him. This would be the downfall of David in a sense. You all remember when it was time to build the temple, David wanted to build the temple for his God and what? prevented David from building the temple? 
He was a man of bloodshed. He was a man of war. So God said, you cannot build the temple for me. It will be given to your son to build the temple. Though, David, you can continue to build the implements and the instruments and all the accoutrements that will go in the temple. You yourself cannot build the temple because my goal for you, my role for you was that you be a man of war. What does that tell us, church? That God has specific purposes for us. And we need to fulfill those purposes. But just because we can't fill somebody else's purpose that we envy or that we desire doesn't mean that our purpose isn't just as important in God's eternal plan. David's purpose was to be a man of war, to defeat the Philistines, to make Israel safe so that there could be a temple built by his son Solomon, but it would not be built by a man of war. Let's not envy other people's roles, church. David wanted to build that temple so bad, but only his son would be allowed. Only his son would be allowed. He had to accept the role that God gave him and said, this is enough for me. This is part of the puzzle that makes the whole thing work out. And I'm happy just to be a piece of the puzzle. Now, there was an evil spirit. Well, we just heard about an evil spirit a few verses ago, but now there's another evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the harp with his hand. Oh, my goodness, David, stop playing the harp. It's not good for you. Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence so that he, he stuck the spear in the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Two separate occasions. Saul is burning with wicked, evil emotion. David does his job. He starts playing the harp. Let me calm the king. I see he has a spear in his hand. Surely he won't throw it at me a second time. He plays the harp. Saul gets enraged. Stop playing the music of heaven. Stop playing it. I know your motives, David. Stop pretending that you are after my good. I know that you just want to hurt me the sword. But the thing I want to point out here is this is the second time God allows an evil spirit to visit Saul. There's a verse, and I, again, I like to tie this stuff to the New Testament, and I'd like you all to be my vision, because I don't know, my, my slides have switched. To, I, John asked me to wait a few seconds. What do I do? All right, so I'll go on and tell you anyway. In the gospel, Jesus Christ tells us the story of a person who had an evil spirit in their life. And that evil spirit was cast out. And that evil spirit roamed all over the world for a place to rest. And what happened, church? Couldn't find a place to rest. So it went back to the person it was removed from. And it said, hey, this house is still empty. And it invited its friends. It said, come on with me. That place I left, that person who I was thrown out of, their house is still empty. I'm going to come back with my friends and I'm going to dwell in that house. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. 
And the last state of the man becomes worse than the first state. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Why do I say this? Saul had an interaction with the first evil spirit. Didn't change his life. And then he gets visited by another evil spirit. And they start to control his life. Why do I say this? Because, folks, we we have all the time people who come for church counseling or teaching. And they're at the bottom of the barrel in life. They've ruined their life. You know, they're, they're, they're in a world of trouble, a world of hurt. Life is messed up. And they come to church, and they want an answer. And they say, turn my life around, God. Turn my life around. And they come to church for a few days or a few weeks. And then all of a sudden, you don't see them anymore. Their house is still empty. Their house is still in disarray. I worry about those people most because when they come to church for a quick answer for all that they've destroyed and ruined in their life, and then they say, well, well, I've been here for four weeks and my life isn't turning around, and then they go back to that house that they live in that destroyed them, seven more demons are going to be on their back because they didn't fill that house with Jesus Christ. They didn't fill that house with God, and they just have more and more woes and difficulty and problems. And now they think they have nowhere to turn because the church didn't work, Christ didn't work, now I have nowhere to turn. But this is where Saul's at. The demons just keep coming at him because he's not filling that house with a love for God. So here's where we end. These next few few slides are imperative to wrapping this up well. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, to kill him, to get him, to kill him. But when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying with Samuel standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul who were sent to get him, to kill him. And those messengers started to prophesy. Not tell the future, they started to speak forth the word of God. So these messengers of death, when they were surrounded by the prophet of God, started to themselves overwhelmingly by the power of God speak forth the precious word of God. Their harps started playing. When it was told Saul, hey, that can't be, that's ridiculous. They must have been defective. He sent other messengers and they also began to prophesy, to say the word of God. So Saul sent messengers again the third time and they also prophesied. They were also overwhelmed by God and they spoke forth the word of God. Then he himself, Saul, went to Ramah and came as far as the large well that is in Saku. And he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, behold, they are at Noath in Ramah. He proceeded there to Noath in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Noath in Ramah. He also stripped off his clothes and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay down naked all the day and all the night. Therefore they say, is Saul also among the prophets? So this is where we wrap up. Saul sent these people to kill him, to get David. And they were overwhelmed by the power of God and God caused them to speak truth about God. He sent more, he sent a third. And then Saul says, this is ridiculous. I have to take care of this myself. I'm going to go down to where Samuel is. I'm going to go down to where the prophets of God are. And I'm going to get David. I'm going to take care of this situation. And when he gets there, he is overwhelmed by the power of God and is stripped naked and lays on his side and he speaks forth the word of God. What is God telling us as he wraps up chapter 19, church, is that you can rage as much as you want against God, but he's still in absolute control. He is still in absolute power. 
You can love yourself. You can deny God. You can live in your anxiety, your fear, your envy, your jealousy. And you can think that your armor is the best armor in the world. You can think that that your spear is all the power that you need. But when you come against the God of Israel, I will strike you naked and you will prophesy my name. Because that is the God who we serve. Saul, you can do whatever you want, but you only do what I allow you to do. So brother, straighten up or look like a fool because the fool says in his heart, Saul, there is no God. But Saul was a greater fool. He knew there was a God and said, I won't serve him. Who's the greater fool? So I ask you this, church, where are you this morning? Where are you living? Are you on the path that plays the harp and listens to the beautiful music of God and tries your best to follow that music, to listen to the harp and go where the harp leads? Or are you on that path where you're holding that spear so tight in your hand that you just want to pin anybody to the wall but you because they're all to blame for this horrible life that you're living? And if that's you, you need to find God because you ain't living a horrible life, church. You are sons and daughters of the most high God. You need to listen to the harp. You need to let go of the spear. You need to walk the path of righteousness. You need to put aside envy, hate, jealousy. Put on peace, contentment, grace, and love. If you are here this morning and you are not saved, you are not a child of God, you do not know how to walk this path, I cry out to you this morning. Decide that Jesus Christ is the only way to have peace with God. Decide in your mind and heart that you are not good enough to achieve sonship or daughtership with your heavenly father. That your good works cannot save you because you cannot do enough of them to access heaven. But God in his great love sent his son so that he would die for you on a cross and he would pay for all of your sins. And all you have to do is say, Jesus, cover me with robes of righteousness that were provided for me by your shed blood. That's all you have to say. And then you have to believe that he was resurrected on the third day and said, look, I have overcome sin and death for you. That's all you have to do is say, I believe in God and I'm tired of following my own will and my own self and say his death was more than sufficient, more than I deserve. But it's what I need to live this life of the harp instead of the spear. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up on stage. We're going to pray, and then we're going to sing. Nothing wrong with that, right, church? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you do lay bare who we are, but more than that, you lay bare who we can be. We are yours. Help us to follow the way of the harp. Help us to drop our spears. In Jesus' precious name, amen.